Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic film. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for The 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, today we're joined by one of our favorite, absolute favorite guests. It's not here for a very happy occasion, but it's always a happy occasion when Bill George is here with us. And and he he's back and we're thrilled to have him. Hi, Bill. Um, you know hey, guys. And, uh, and, and, you know, we uh, it has not been a great month for... Um, uh, for for the Star Trek family, because uh, not only the person that we're going to celebrate his life today, who passed away uh, recently, the great Greg Jean, but uh, more recently, um, Doug Drexler's wife, Dorothy Duter, who was in a way the the real first lady of Star Trek, yeah. uh, uh, recently passed away of cancer. And um, we also want to mention her and our condolences to Doug. Uh, Dorothy was a really she was a, a firecracker and a spitfire and just a wonderful, wonderful person. She also worked on Enterprise. Um, One of a kind. She she truly was. And it, anyone who knew her and had her, um, you know, in their lives was very lucky. And we just, you know, feel uh, so awful for, for Doug because um, the two of them were a very special couple. And yeah. we know how much uh, he is lost and how much all not just Star Trek fans, but people in general have lost by, by this wonderful woman passing away. Um, but we also want to honor the great Greg Jean today. And uh, that's why we got Bill joining us because not only, you know, are, we're Darren and Bill very close with Greg, but also um, uh, just have amazing stories. But I, I want to sort of set the table, so to speak, and, and, and explain to our audience because not everybody knows who Greg, Gene was and why he was so important, not just in the annals of Star Trek, but the annals of science fiction, filmmaking, the genre. But beyond that was just, as, as we say in Yiddish, a mensch. Yeah. So, um, Bill, why don't you tell us a little bit about Greg? 
Well, I think Greg was like one of the original gangsta Star Trek fans. I think he was into serious fandom when the show was still on the air. Yep. And I heard rumors that he actually was able to go onto the sets at some point. Star Trek was interesting. Uh, I actually found out about it before it was on the air. I used to collect, and I still do collect, comic books. And there was a lot of stores in Hollywood that I'd go up to on the weekend and buy stuff. And in 1966, I believe, the uh, Batman TV show came out, and uh, I went up there one day, and they had, hey, what are these? These are scripts. Oh, Batman scripts. Cool. So I bought some of those, and as I walked out, this guy came up in a suit, and he says, hey, did you buy those Batman scripts? I sold those guys upstairs. I said, yes. And he says, hey, I got other stuff, and we hooked up for the next couple of years, and he'd sell me uh, scripts from shows that weren't even on the area, and one of them was Star Trek, and I looked at that, and went, well, this is kind of interesting. What the heck does it look like? And finally, when it came on, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. That was one of my uh, last influences from the 60s. I'm like, wow, that's pretty bitchin'. But um, he also was an avid collector. And I'm not sure which started first, the collecting or him working in the industry. But they were two passions that meshed very, very well. Yeah. He was an incredible talent. He built miniatures. That's how he started his career. Um, I was lucky enough to work with him. He's worked with dozens of people over the years. I, I went to many conventions, not just science fiction conventions, but like uh, collectibles conventions, autograph conventions, and he seemed to know everybody. This guy had so many connections everywhere he went. Super sweet guy and just seemed to bring people together. But I think at the core of it was Greg's passion for miniatures and science fiction and especially Star Trek. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And yeah, he he was uh, he was there at Ground Zero. Um, he uh, had uh, a lot of uh, connection to uh, Lincoln Enterprises. He would, uh, I believe, he was one of the people who would go through all the uh, uh, clips and uh, and sort out the slides and all sorts of uh, that stuff and help them sort of organize uh, the stuff that they had to sell. And uh, he was very connected uh, to them and also very connected to uh, B. Joe Trimble, um, who, of course, was the uh, sort of the, the leader of the grassroots uh, fandom uh, for Star Trek at the time and uh, and led the uh, the letter campaign that saved it for uh, the third season. Um, Greg loved so much, uh, so many things passionately. Um, and he would share that with just about anybody who asked, and sometimes people who didn't ask. Um, what I loved about him was that uh, I got to work with him on a couple shows, and uh, on uh, on one of them, he would just be bringing in stuff to show and tell, and uh, would always, uh, you know, share uh, stuff that he found interesting. Um, you know, photos or uh, little props. Uh, one day he brought in a whole bag full of uh, props from the Batman show and uh, Green Hornet. And he just loved to share his enthusiasm. And uh, and he and I also shared a, a love for old time radio. And he was uh, particularly a fan of uh, The Shadow and uh, Inner Sanctum. And all those great old time radio shows that, uh, you know, sort of have uh, almost disappeared. I, they, there's uh, there's a, a groundswell of interest now on the Internet with people, you know, passing back and forth uh, MP3s of them. Yeah, they call uh, them podcasts now. <laughs> I mean, but that's really what those these audio podcasts are. They're just old time radio shows. Well, <laughs> in, in some way, absolutely. Uh, not uh, not what we're doing, but I'm no. telling you, there is a huge um, uh, uh, interest in these, these, you know, fiction narrative podcasts, which have special effects and performances and music. And it is it's like was it listening to the old radio shows. Well, no one's got time for that stuff. <laughs> but, you know, if they need Orson Welles, they knew who to they know who to call. So <laughs> you bring back the shadow and, yes, and Maurice the voice of Lamont Cranston. <laughs> Lamont Cranston is played by Derek Dockerman. Uh, he could play all the parts. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I obviously I didn't know Greg as well as you guys did, um, but I remember, you know, as a kid reading about Laser Blast and Starlog, and reading about Greg and thinking, "Wow, this sounds like so. This sounds like a really cool guy, and what a, what a cool story." And then, you know, cut forward to I was 
I don't know if I was writing for Cinefantastic or Sci-Fi Owen Sci-Fi Universe at the time or whatever. But you know, I, I got to spend some time with Greg. And um, you know, one of the things I'll always fondly remember is he sent me the greatest Christmas cards. He was famous for his Christmas cards, which were always these really sort of sexy 50s homages where he'd have like Robbie the robot carrying like a really voluptuous hot naked woman or something like that. And they were always um uh, you know, every year he sent the greatest Christmas cards. Um, yeah. but he, 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 you know, and he was so proud of this collection that he amassed. I mean, I, I remember he just didn't want to leave, um, because there was just, it was, it was like being at Santa's workshop in a way. Well, his, uh, his, uh, uh, shop down in Marina del Rey was, uh, a, like you said, a mixture of Santa's workshop and, uh, uh, well, for for you old time uh, radio fans, Fibber McGee's closet. Um, it was it was jam packed with all these things that he had collected over the years. He had uh, he had one of the uh, robots from Lost in Space. He had a uh, uh, one of the spacesuits from two thousand and one, and he had so many things that uh, that he loved as a kid that you know like uh uh rocket men from mars and and uh and uh things like that that uh a lot of people had forgotten about but he was sort of the torchbearer of a lot of this stuff and as it turns out a lot of this stuff came back into popularity uh later and uh, uh became uh, more known to people and he had had this stuff all the time in his heart and in his uh, closet Bill, how did he first enter your orbit? You know, how did you guys, because you, you got started a little later than him, I think, but oh, you, yeah. know, you worked on a lot of the same, you know, projects during that sort of, you know, benchmark era of the genre, you know, great sci-fi movies of the late 70s and early 80s. Well, after Star Wars came out and I started making my own models, um, a friend of mine introduced me to the conventions in Los Angeles, the science fiction conventions. And back then, because of Star Wars, they had taken off and there were so many people there. But you know what? There also was Logan's Run. I remember that whole thing where they would have runs at night and there was this weird psychosexual component to it. Uh, Battlestar Galactica was really popular. It wasn't just Star Wars, but I would show my models at these conventions. And it was also a place for me to go and get reference because, of course, we did not have the Internet back then. So if you wanted to know what the detailing was on the Millennium Falcon, you had to go and buy clips from the movie or stills, that kind of thing, or magazines. So anyway, I knew Greg from reading magazines. Uh, There's that famous shot of him from Close Encounters where he's kind of looming over kind of the intersection in the country with the little teeny stop sign. It's Uh just so iconic. And I had seen that and I had read about him. And he walked by my table and I go, oh, hi, are you Greg? And he was very gracious and friendly. And we talked. I never asked him for a job. I just talked to him about, well, what materials do you use? What techniques do you use? Blah, blah, blah. And I think because talking to him, he recognized that I at least had some idea of what was going on. I think that's what led to him uh, asking me for a job. Right, right. And what was the first thing that you worked with him on? It was Star Trek The Motion Picture, huh. which was a great movie to start on. For Star Trek The Motion Picture, I was um, originally contacted by Doug Trumbull when he took over from Robert Abel. But I was working with uh, Steven Spielberg on uh, 1941 at the time and couldn't get away. By the time I could get away, um, the Enterprise had already been done, and we were put onto the uh, V'ger interior and some of the objects during the uh, Spock spacewalk. Greg had been brought in to work on um, the spacewalk sequence and the V'ger interior. That was something that came in kind of late in the schedule. And I think that I started with Greg that summer. It was only like three or four months before the film was even out. Yeah. It was crazy when you think about it. Well, they, yeah, they had, uh, they had teams all over town uh, working 24 hour shifts and, uh, and uh, uh, trying to get everything done by that famous deadline. Um, did you get to work on the space lips? Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> you know, back then I wasn't in the union. It was highly unionized back in Los Angeles back in the late 70s. And I was hired as a production assistant. So the majority of my time was spent driving around, picking stuff up, cleaning the shop, doing support. 
But at night and on the weekends, I was able to go in and do some model making, some detailing, which, of course, Greg knew that I was just really anxious to do. Sure. Um, so that was an amazing opportunity. And what a great first project to be on. Like you said, it was round the clock. I got a really good idea of what movie making is like. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yes, that's yes. true. Yeah, because exactly. Exactly. Because Greg famously, you know, after Close Encounters worked on 1941, uh, you know, famously troubled production. But, you know, you look back at it and obviously it's a really amazing film in so many ways. And certainly the miniature work and the special effects work is staggering in that film. Yes. Close Encounters was fun. That was an 18-month job. And then I segued to um, almost two straight years on 1941, which was probably one of the most visually satisfying films I worked on. It's, it's glorious. And I knew this uh, fellow by the name of Dave Heilman, and he had some, had some connections with Greg. And I actually got to go and see the hangar. I think it was at Van Nuys Airport yeah. where they had stored all the miniatures and I got to see a bunch of them and, and they were amazing. But you're right. The work in that is just absolutely stellar. And I think was nominated for uh, Academy Award for Visual Effects. There's a phenomenon, I'm sure you guys have seen it, where a director has a couple of successes and then everybody is gunning for a failure. And I think that 1941, unfortunately, people were just looking, you know, if if it would have been directed by Alan Smithy, maybe people would have been a little more kind with it. Um, I mean, certainly it's got its flaws, but my God, that score, that yeah. John, John Williams score, score. just amazing. And the, the casting is amazing. But I, I saw that movie like six or seven times in the theater. I'm probably the only person. I, I don't think you're um, the only one, but you're certainly uh, a, a, a very rarefied group. Um, <laughs> the, let's go back a little bit to his work on Close Encounters, because um, there are few images that are as iconic in just cinema yeah. in general as that mothership coming up over Devil's Tower. And not only is the is the is the mothership uh, a model, but in that shot, Devil's Tower is a model as well. And it's it's just so it's just so well done that you don't even think of it as a model. You just think of it as the real thing. And the intricacy of all of the uh, the plumbing on that ship is so beautifully done. And of course, you know, there are stories that uh, even Steven Spielberg came in to drill holes in the pipes yeah. uh, to make the windows. Uh, I, I that may or may not be apocryphal, but it's a good story anyway. Um, and uh, it the the amount of work that went in that, and I don't think he had a very big crew on that because um, I, I think it it went pretty fast because uh, the uh, the determination of what the mothership looked like happened really quickly after they stopped shooting, um, and they really had no idea what it was going to look like. Uh, but uh, Greg's realization of that is so beautiful and, and logical, almost. It, it looks like it is uh, crafted from, uh, you know, out of this world. But it is absolutely, uh, the imagery of it is completely realistic. And it's, uh, it's so magical. Be, of the way it reveals itself. It sort of lights up and, and the light patterns spread out over it. And it's just so beautiful uh, throughout that whole end sequence. And uh, I think that for as small as it was, the miniature, it wasn't more than like five feet across, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but it was so well done. And of course, Dennis Muren photographed it and uh, it looked uh, amazing. But Man, to to be uh, sort of connected with that and uh, and not be considered a, a magical wizard uh, would be just uh, unthinkable. It's it's funny because people say, you know, you guys are so nostalgic about the days of, you know, miniatures and, you know, optical effects. And it's like I just think about those iconic photos, like you said, of Gene, uh, of Greg holding you know, the ship and 
all, all, all the photos of people like Bill, you know, with with the ships that you've built and all these people in these that, you know, we grew up on that are so memorable. And now it's people pointing at computer screens and it's just not the same thing. It's like, oh, look, there's a wireframe model. And it's like, as opposed to like holding something tangible that they built with their yeah. hands. And 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 it's just, um, it, it's, it's just remarkable. And there's um, something really relatable about miniatures. And it's one of the reasons I think people are drawn to them because you can understand it. And in a way, that mothership miniature is a star. That was what was photographed mm -hmm. and was in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And of course, seeing it without the lights on is, is a very different experience. Absolutely. It's this gunmetal gray, but when the lights go on, it just comes to life. And, you know, that was one of the things that Greg was so clever about and so talented was figuring out ways to create something as complex as that without having to manufacture everything. I believe... The shapes on that were cigar holders. Those there's very thin aluminum covers for cigars, and used those and drilled holes in them with neon um, tubes inside for the light. Right. Now, Bill, were you the one who told the story about how on the day that they were shooting, you know, the destruction of Los Angeles in 1941, Spielberg suddenly decided he wanted to see people in the in the buildings, and how Greg basically had only a few hours to figure out a way to have people <laughs> moving around inside these miniatures. No, I, I, I'd love to hear the story. So would I, 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 <laughs> I could have sworn it was you, but apparently not. <laughs> I, 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 I'm trying to remember who, who actually, because, you know, obviously there was such an outpouring of love for Greg when he passed. And I, you know, I can't remember who said who was saying what, because there's this, mm -hmm. you know, community of, of, like-minded individuals, you know, who are all celebrating his life. But I, I read that story, it must have been on Facebook or something. And um, and I just thought it's so, it's so great. It's such a it's such a wonderful story of both inventiveness and ingeniousness. And obviously, um, you know, that was that's the thing about filmmaking, you know, it's just like you have all this money and yet it comes down to you got a couple hours to figure out a solution, if that. Right. Um, and you know, make yep. it work because well, and that's that's a big part of it is trial by fire. You know, you get thrown in the pool and you either sink or swim. I believe Greg was hired for like eight weeks on um, Close Encounters, and it ended up being eighteen months. And of course, he was on the list for the Academy Award nomination, and that just shows how he came in to help, and then recognized very quickly that now this is somebody <laughs> who knows what they're doing, and we need them. Right, and yeah. he was there till the very end. Well. Not only, you know, we didn't only love him for his brilliance and his artistry, um, but first of all, he was a very sweet person. And uh, and the fact that he was, you know, one of us, he was he was the like a prototype for the fan who made good, you know, and yeah. uh, that is just so um, inspiring and and uh, just wonderful to see that. Uh, not only someone who isn't an asshole uh, is is successful at what they do, and that is just not only rare but uh, so wonderful to actually behold. Well, and Darren, I love that story, which I know is your story. <laughs> that um, when you talk about what a wonderful guy he is, that you know he would it would inspire you to do anything for him, right? Well, and, uh, and there was a case in which you did that, and it wasn't what you thought it was. This was a few this was a few years ago. I mean, i I had uh, you know uh, gotten to know Greg on uh, several shows, like I said. and uh, i would I would call him up occasionally and just uh, you know uh, shoot the breeze. And uh, one day I get a phone call, and it's Greg. He says, "Hey, what are you up to?" I said, "Well, you know, I'm not up to much right now. Uh, what's going on?" He said, "Well, uh, I sort of have a problem. I'm uh, I, I have to uh, I have to consolidate and move one of my storage uh, spots. Uh, storage compartments. Storage compartments. Storage compartments full of what? Full of wheat? No, full of uh, <laughs> you know, his his uh, uh, you know the collection miniatures, what have you. Uh, he had to uh, close out uh, this uh, storage space because they were closing the uh, facility." And so he said, look, I, I need your help. Um, would it be possible for you to uh, like rent a pickup truck and come down here and help me? I said, absolutely. Of course I will. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I immediately uh, drive over to U-Haul, get a, a pickup truck and drive down to Culver City, where he was uh, emptying out one or more of these storage spaces. I drive up there and there he is. He has his own uh, pickup truck that he's loading full of boxes and things. And so uh, I get out and I uh, help him move some stuff. And it, it, it looks like he's he's nearly done, actually. Uh, that, uh, you know, one space is, uh, is empty and the other one is nearly empty. And I said, uh, it looks like you're almost uh, done here. Is there something else that you needed me for? And he says, uh, well, yeah, kind of, uh, uh, follow me. So I, I walk over to another space where he, uh, he opens the big, uh, the big overhead door and, uh, he says, uh, Look, I thought that uh, I have this uh, big, uh, big thing here, and I thought that you uh, would want to adopt it if you could. I said, "What?" And so he he pulls the tarp over this what turns out to be a big wooden drafting table, like a six foot long drafting table that you would see in art departments. And uh, it was uh, really well made. It was uh, it looked like it was fairly old and. On one of the legs was a sticker that said property of Paramount Pictures. <laughs> and uh, he says, you know, I, uh, I, I sort of obtained this during uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, and uh, I don't have any more room for it. And I thought maybe you would want it. And that's the reason he asked me to get a pickup truck, because he wanted to give me this drafting table. And so, you know, like I said in my post, he tricked me into him giving me a present, which is <laughs> which is just about the sweetest thing anyone's ever done for me. And uh, I still have the table. It's here. And my God, it, it is a it's one of those physical connections to, you know, something that I loved as a kid and wound up working on later in my life. And he knew what would be perfect for me. And it was just, so, it was so touching. I, I, you know, I gave him a hug and I said, you bastard. Because um, <laughs> it was just so tricky and, and, uh, and funny. And uh, yeah, it was a, a really sweet moment with Greg. Oh, I love that story. I mean, it just, and it really sort of encapsulates you know, the, the goodness that was there. And it's funny, he was so modest because really one of the great things in Star Trek history for many of us, we have him to thank. And he didn't want people to know for a long time. And of course, that was saving the master tapes of all the Star Trek recording sessions from 66 to 69 from those first three seasons of Star Trek. And um, uh, for a long time, uh, it had been thought that these uh, you know, recordings have been destroyed. If you recall, um, uh, Southern Cross and Verez teamed up to record a music from the original Star Trek overseas because they, they didn't have access to the, you know, actual uh, music. And in fact, uh, it was um, Greg who had rescued these from oblivion by finding, took them out of a dumpster and kept yeah. them all those years until they would become useful again. And the, these tapes were bulky. They were big. And, uh, you know, he paid to have them stored and uh, took really good care of them. And now we have this, uh, you know, pristine uh, CD set from La La Land Records of all of the music that was ever recorded for Star Trek. And it's really magical. And we have Greg to thank. Yeah. I mean, to have those that, that, that you know, iconic, that classic music from Gerald Freed and Saul Kaplan and all that music. <laughs> we have because of Greg and, you know, obviously other people later on, like Lucas Kendall um, and the guys at La La Land, you know, um, Mike and Matt, it's just, um, we're so lucky, you know, and that again, was the, the fingerprints of, of Greg Jean. It's funny recording this session because it brought back a memory of Greg that I ha haven't thought about in 25 years. And um, I remember back when I was very young writing for Cine Fantastic, I was writing about Star Trek six and I was, I, 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 I found the perfect lead to open the story. I wrote about the story, which is a true story. It's become sort of infamous um, about how Adam Nimoy 
took pictures of a nude Kim Cattrall on the bridge of the Enterprise. And Leonard found out about it and was furious and just ripped up all the, the photos. And he, he he thought it was like, a, you know, complete uh, um, bastardization. It was just, you know, he, he, this is a sacred space. And he was very, very upset about it. The person who told me that story was Greg Jean. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he certainly had a very twisted sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that would, you, know, you know, look, I mean, obviously, you know, I then went and got it confirmed by a second source, and it was. It was true, <laughs> but he was, the, he was, you know, now that we, you know, you can talk about deep throat, you know, uh, after Mark Felt dies. Well, he was my the deep throat for that story. <laughs> we, we call him deep thrall. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think for him, despite all the amazing uh, uh, um models and miniatures and movies and people that he worked with, certainly one of the highlights and again, a gift to Star Trek fans the world over was what he did with Deep Space Nine, Trials and Tribulations. Picking up another ship, dead ahead. Can you identify it? Not yet, but it's close. Very close. Chief, I need that view screen. I think I've got it. That's... The Enterprise where he went and built the Enterprise and the K-7 and the Klingon and, and did it for a price that they could afford so they would actually be able to do that episode for the 25th anniversary. Was it 25th? 30th? 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 Uh, yeah. 30th. Uh, for the anniversary of the franchise. Right. Um, well, here's, here's part of his strategy when yeah. it came to that, is he would do models like that that he was very interested in for a good price and help the production out, because then afterwards he would have the molds so he right. could make a copy for himself. You know, it all tied into his passion for collecting. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, he, he basically uh, gave them K7 and the Klingon ship for nothing uh, on that. And, uh, you know, it... it it made it so interesting to watch uh, that, you know, he, he basically resurrected uh, TOS in front of our eyes. Um, you uh, worked with him uh, with a very uh, elite team to build the first uh, model of the Enterprise D for Star Trek The Next Generation up at ILM. That is correct. Can you, can you tell a little about uh, how that came together? I don't remember exactly how Greg ended up on the team. He had worked with ILM before. He came up for uh, Batteries Not Included. Ah, yeah. He was like the, the chief model maker on that. And it was such a perfect project for him because it involved all these little, they were basically creatures that were articulated. A lot of them were rod puppets that they did rod removal on. And very cute. And Greg did most of the prototypes and built, and I think puppeteered a lot of the, the characters on stage as well. I'm not sure when that was, but we built the Enterprise. I think that was like 86, 87. Is that, yeah. that sound yeah. right? Yeah. And it's possible that they had him come up and work with us because of his reputation and their trust level with him. Right. Um, but it, it, was, it was the normal model shop team, a lot of the people there. Uh, there was a guy by the name of uh, Bob, no, Bill Kincannon, who had worked with Larry Albright doing... Uh, yeah, neon. neon down in LA, and he just so happened to be up in San Francisco. So we were using him for that because that was a big component of it. Really, really challenging ship, as you know, because it's so organic and swoopy, and it had to do things like pieces, the saucer separating, all that stuff, windows everywhere. But yeah, Greg was a huge part of that. And I think the first thing he did was he built a about a five inch maquette to work out the shapes and the proportions, which led to uh, about a 15-inch model and then, of course, the six-foot one. Right. Uh, it, seeing uh, photos, I think, in the Star Trek magazine, uh, they showed you guys working on that. And it was, so, it was so fun to see you guys just making this from uh, out of whole cloth, basically. 
from a you know a couple uh, Andy Probert sketches and uh, and making it work. I guess they did they they drew up a blueprint in the art department for you. Uh, yes, there there were finished blueprints, and we were told to match them as as close as possible, which okay. we did. And I'm sure you did. Um, uh, it, it, that that is a that is a beautiful miniature. It was very it was very large. It was uh, it was on display at the uh, at the Skirball Center uh, just a few right. months ago. Um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, that was yet another you know instance where oh look, there's Greg Jean again. He's everywhere. <laughs> He's ubiquitous. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure he wanted to be there too. Of you know, course. That was his, he, like you said, it's, it was his passion. He wanted to work on Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. And I think he made it happen. Did he have a favorite uh, uh, that he worked on, either a favorite project or a favorite miniature? He, he just loved it all. I never heard him pick out a favorite. Yeah. Yeah, he he did. He loved it all. He 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 just he enjoyed not only the process but the uh, the fantasy of it all, mm. and uh, and uh, just loved to, you know, one of the connections I think between actual physical miniatures and uh, and the movie business is that sort of toy quality, the playing with toys, and you know the the. Uh, uh, adults being able to uh, tap into their uh, inner child and uh, and you know really get into the the meat of imagination and that's just such a it was such a wonderful thing that uh, I saw in Greg I see in you too Bill and it's it's uh, it's just so great that uh, you know with all the years of uh, experience and uh, letdowns and uh, and uh, defeats. Uh, that you can still maintain that sort of childlike uh, uh, attitude toward things. Well, he was a mentor to so many people. They talk about paying it forward, and it represents the best of this business, as you said, about you know looking after the next generation, so to speak, and you know inspiring them. And you know, so many stories of people, you know, like you said, seeing him at a convention, he would stop and talk, and you know, be be very encouraging and and. Uh, you know, he was he was a really remarkable individual because that is a, a rare quality in this business, sadly. You know, um, uh, what do you, you know, did he talk about the collection in terms of, obviously, he had this extensive collection of uh, not just genre memorabilia, but from other things. I mean, he talks about his prized possession being, you know, what his Laurel and Hardy. Um, uh, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, amassing this amazing collection and sort of the impetus behind it and some of the, the great pieces that he had? An interesting thing for me, which I think is one of the things that's very different between Greg and myself is he didn't just get one thing or 12 things and say, okay, my collection is, is complete. He was always trading and it was yeah. a process. He was always like, oh, I think I can trade this really cool thing for something else. It, it was just, he was always in the process of acquiring, but he wasn't that precious about once he had them. Right. He'd keep them for a while. He'd give them to Darren. He'd trade them for something else. Yeah. It was it was just that, that interaction, that back and forth that seemed a big part of, of who he was. I'm a collector and, a, and an accumulator. Let's be polite that one. I just have a hard time throwing anything away. He, I, I, I think, I think he loved the he loved the hunt. He he loved the you know searching for these things that uh, had either disappeared or uh, uh, were uh, being hidden uh, on purpose uh, from uh, people like him. Um, I, I know that he was he was always uh, sort of looking for stuff from the old serials. From the Republic serials, uh, and uh, uh, would always uh, be so excited when he would get a, a new piece from uh, you know one of the Lidecker rigs or you know whatever uh, that uh, that represented this stuff that he saw as a little kid, and uh, it was uh, it was a pretty he had a pretty wide range of interests uh, that uh, you know often you know paralleled my own. But uh, some things that I learned about just from his interest in them, and that was fascinating because he was always uh, he was always there to help share his enthusiasm about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I, I want to go back a little bit to uh, him uh, being a teacher and a mentor. Um, he had this way uh, about uh, teaching you how to do something without making you feel like an idiot, <laughs> which is incredibly rare. Uh, and he he was so patient um, that even even when he got uh, fed up with something, he would just sort of uh, uh, you know just sort of brush it off and go. Ah, I'll talk to you later. You know, uh, just uh, things that uh, his personality was uh, so uh, open and uh, accepting that uh, he was just a joy to be with, even in in high pressure circumstances. Uh, and I think that's that's incredibly rare. It was like Kivish Fajo in the Most Toys episode of Next Generation. Not at all. Yeah, you know, no, <laughs> I was in the I was in uh, I was in the elevator with Saul Rubinek at the Academy, and you know, my my uh, my wife uh, said, "Oh, he looks familiar," and I'm like, and as soon as he got, I said, "Oh yeah, it's uh, Saul Rubinek from the Next Generation, the, the Most Toys." But we don't want to mention that. I say you could talk about True Romance or one of the other films he's in. He probably doesn't want to be recognized as, "Oh yeah, you were that collector guy in Next Generation." <laughs> he was actually at the uh, the the Planet of the Apes screening. Well, that's that's exciting. Oh no, it was Godfather too. It was Godfather. Wait, no, Planet of the Apes. Anyway, Planet of the Godfather. Yeah, <laughs> but um, and then did did Greg? Because I know his brother directed. Because what did he do? A picture? Uh, he was he wasn't interested in directing so much, but as but but sort of shepherding other people's projects, helping other people realize their. Passions. I think Greg. I think Greg was an only child. I don't think he had any siblings. Oh, maybe. maybe yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think, think I think you're thinking about someone else. Okay. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, but uh, it, it's um, it, 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 it's it's really again. You know, we talked about this out, out outpouring of 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 love for Greg, and. Um, you know, this whole generation of fandom that has so much respect for what came before, you know, it's 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 really sad because, you know, when he did that episode, Trials and Tribulations, it was all about respecting and honoring the aesthetic and, and everything and the process of what came before. And it seems like that's less and less important to people now. Um, but, you know, for Greg, you know, he, you know, he just loved what, what you know, all these shows and, and, um, you know, just so many great, you know, memorable moments that he was involved with. And uh, it's, it's, it's a real, it's a real, a real loss. You know, Bill, I want to ask you, um, is there, is there a charity that um, people, if they want to donate in Greg's memory, that, uh, that has the family announced anything about if people want to make a donation or a tribute in Greg's memory? Um, they're suggesting you go out and have a really good dim sum meal. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's what okay. they said. <laughs> well, well, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, while you're listening to this podcast, you'll call Postmates or Uber Eats, <laughs> get some dim sum delivered. Um, any other, other thoughts or memories about Greg that you guys want to share? But one thing that I that uh, I think was, was sort of the impetus of his uh, collecting was in the uh, you know late 60s and early 70s was the time when the studios were really uh, at the at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, they were you know selling off stuff and trying to uh, make money just to keep afloat. But worse throwing stuff away. Well, exactly. Uh, and one of the studios that were throwing things away was 20th Century Fox. And I knew, I know that uh, Greg obtained some of his uh, some of his most uh, uh, iconic pieces uh, from the Irwin Allen uh, shows of the late 60s. Mm. And uh, he had a bunch of that stuff uh, that were rescued from uh, dumpsters. Because um, he had a chariot, didn't he? The, the chariot from what? He had, had one of the yep. chariots, and mm. I have photos of it. It was amazing. Uh, and uh, I think he had a, a flying sub, and uh, as I mentioned, a, a robot uh, from Lost in Space. Um, but uh, also at the time was the famous uh, Kirk Kikorian MGM auction. And uh, at the time, no one was really interested in, uh, in movie collectibles or props or things like that. So a lot of these things were being sold off uh, at, uh, you know, at 
basically uh, garage sale prices. And uh, I believe he obtained uh, several things from that uh, auction as well. And that sort of became sort of the core of his collection. And like Bill said, allowed him to trade up on a lot of things uh, with uh, maybe a group of smaller things that other people were interested in. Yeah, these there are these great tidal waves, like when obviously uh, Fox, um, you sold off uh, most of the lot um, to, to become, be Century said, become Century City when they got rid of a ton of stuff. Because back in the day, all the studios kept all this stuff because they would recycle it in film after film after film. But there came a point where everybody started getting rid of it. When Kirk Kerkorian bought MGM, um, he wanted to recoup as much of his uh, investment as he could. And one of the first things he and they moved into smaller uh, smaller offices. But one of the things they first thing they did was sell off as much of what they had in storage as they could. And a lot of stuff got destroyed and a lot of it got sold. And yeah. it was a total travesty. And, um, you know, it wasn't until many years later that the studio started to realize, you know, there's gold in them, their hills. And then they started auctioning all this stuff off and really, you know, trying to, you know, like Paramount did with a lot of the Star Trek stuff after Enterprise, when they realized that Star Trek was over and they could sell off all their Star Trek wares. Yeah, we should the bottom finally... line is it, it costs money to store this stuff. And yeah. when you have turnover of, of studio heads and they come in and they go, why are we spending all this money? It's just easy things to cut off and throw away. And it's heartless in a way because it's their history. Right? But a lot of this stuff also, not to be devil's advocate, wasn't made to last. So in order to keep it uh, in good condition, not only in terms of uh, climate controlled, but there yeah. has to be care that goes into maintaining this stuff. Because if you just throw it into, uh, you know, a big uh, storage space with barn doors, you know, baking in the hot California sun. And obviously a lot of these studios have uh, rodent issues and things like that. <laughs> stuff won't keep, uh, you know, keep forever. So to be in the hands of people like Greg, and that's, and that's why it's great that there are things like now the Academy Museum and some of these other places that... Um, um, have these these um to take care of things right. uh properly you know like lucasfilm and the lucasfilm archives i mean there's so many and then and, and now with george opening the new museum uh by usc i mean there are people who know how to look after these things and greg was an amazing custodian for so much of our cinematic and tv history for for many many years and we should all be grateful for that in addition to uh just the the joy and uh, that he brought, you know, to 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 his friends and uh, people that he worked with, of which there are many, many, many. It's one of the things that you know. I always thought I had a very special relationship with Greg because I met him so early in, in his career, and he helped launch my career, uh, and was very generous, very giving all throughout, and we stayed friends. And then what I found since his death is that. There are so many people like me. I was not unique. And it's just amazing the amount of people that have connections with him. And he's just such a gentle person and such a good person. that It really was a loss. You know, as sad as it is to, to, to talk about, you know, the death of someone beloved in these awful times that we live, it's wonderful to hear that people like Greg, who had so much to give and shared so much, and are you know are, 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 you know we're there because you know every all the news these days is just bad to worse, and then you know you you hear this outpouring of just admiration and love and respect for Greg Jean, and you think okay you know maybe things aren't as bad as it seems. Bill, do you have any uh, any uh, specific uh, uh, Greg stories that uh, you've never told anyone else? But you're going to tell exclusively <laughs> to the drink sports. Dun, 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 dun. Oh <laughs> I mean, there's at least one that I really shouldn't tell. But what? But this is the treasure. Really, so you will. This 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 really made me laugh. I was down visiting Greg. This was probably in the mid '90s, and um, he, he had a, his studio going, and he had maybe ten people there, and it was a combination of men and women, and they had a single bathroom. And I went into the bathroom and someone had written above the toilet, men, please lift the seat before using the toilet. 
And then very obviously the bottom, Greg had written, we aim to please. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought that was, that was so great to (laughs) you. Well, this is, this is, I'm so glad we did this. And, and Darren, is there anything you want to add to sort of button this conversation about Greg that, you know, know, obviously to the people that are listening, he had an incredibly dry sense of humor that sometimes when he was uh, when he was uh, making a joke, you didn't know it right away. And, you know, minutes later, you you go, oh, OK, I see what he was doing there. But one thing, the first time I went to visit his shop, uh, this was probably about 1987 or 88, maybe. Um, they had been doing Next Generation for uh, for a few months. And there was uh, <laughs> there was a, some drawings of I believe it was the Enterprise C up on the wall, and but there was there was a little sign underneath this that uh, I, I'm sure it's okay to mention it now. The little sign to please. No, no. <laughs> the, the little sign uh, said the uh, Star Trek Memorial turd polishing instructions. <laughs> Um, that was obviously a uh, an editorial note on uh, whatever design was being built then, and uh, but I thought that you know this was sort of one of my first connections to actual professional workers uh, in a in a job situation, and the fact that uh, they could have you know so much fun sort of uh, putting down what they were doing as uh, as you know being uh, inconsequential. And uh, just sort of having fun with what they had to do. And that sort of attitude sort of uh, helped me uh, to understand to not take this stuff completely seriously, to have fun, do a good job, but uh, don't be so uh, uh, um, uptight about everything. And we just sort of look to have fun and make everything the best we can on any project we work on. And I think that was uh, that was one of the lessons that Greg taught me inadvertently. Yeah, you know, I really wish we had had Greg on the show. We had talked about it, and by yeah. then he already was not. Uh, he was a little. He wasn't um, able to be on the show. But uh, I, it was w- one of those guests that got away, and I feel bad because it, w- it would have been great to have, you know, Greg talk about his his amazing career. I got to ask you, Bill. This has nothing to do with Greg Gene at all, but we have you on the show you know, which is yes. a rare and joyful occasion. So I have to ask you, because I know what a huge fan you are of Space 1999. Have you gotten the new Moonbase Alpha Technical Manual? I have not. I've, I've seen it, but I have not gotten it yet. It's great. Is it great? I don't know what's going on with the Space 1999 Renaissance, but two big books came out in the last, the, 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 the Moonbase Alpha Technical Manual revised. And then there's this new book called Space 1999, The Album which also came out that is um, it's like an encyclopedia of space 1999. I, I don't know who's buying this stuff. I mean, it's, other it's, than me, it's almost an instruction of how to uh, store nuclear waste up on the moon. And, <laughs> I, um, I, I, it's uh, it's great to see at least the interest from, you know, small uh, publishing uh, people to, uh, to find this very underground uh, fandom uh, because there, there ain't a lot of kids who know about space 1999. That's for sure. No, but I have to say um, we're gonna have to have Ron Moore on the show, not to talk about Star Trek, but to talk about for all mankind, which is clearly influenced by space 1999, not only the, the look, but you know, there've been a couple of references to space 1999 in the show. <laughs> and uh, you know, I know when, you know, when we interviewed him for um, uh, the, the you know, the book, the Society oh, I- book on Galactica, yeah. you know, I said to him, I said, um, I, I, I got to believe that those opening credits to Galactica are influenced by this episode, this episode of Space 99. He says, yes, that's where I got the idea. So wow. um, clearly a huge Space 1999 fan. So I think we have to get him on the show and we, we won't even talk about Star Trek. We'll just talk about <laughs> we'll 1999 for all mankind, which I just started watching. And I, you know, I, I've mentioned this before that I just absolutely love, but uh, we'll talk about that another time. You just started watching. from the beginning. I, ju- I just started watching for all mankind. 
Wow. Yeah, I, did, I didn't, um, for whatever reason, when it premiered, I was, I was in production and I didn't have time. And then, and then just never got around to it. And for whatever yep. reason, I don't know what it was like two weeks ago, I said, Oh, I should really watch this. And I oh, watched the first so episode good. and I'm like, Oh my God, this is great. I binged the whole thing in like two yeah. weeks. You know? <laughs> and I love it. I absolutely love it. It's so smart and well done. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it, it just, it breaks my heart because, you know, a lot of people don't know this. He was originally Paramount's first choice to um, run Star Trek, the new oh. the new Star Trek. And what happened was he was under contract to Sony mm. uh, at the time. Now he's under contract to ABC, to, to, to Disney. But uh, he was under contract to Sony. And uh, Paramount and Sony couldn't make a deal. And mm. I, I will tell you, the, only, the, the, the problem was not on Sony's end. Sony wanted a little bit of money to let him out of his contract and Paramount wasn't willing to spend the money. And mm -hmm. so Ron Moore did not end up doing Star Trek. Wow. And it is one of the great tragedies in, in Star Trek history that uh, Ron Moore didn't get no. to do Star Trek, but he did get to do for all mankind, which wouldn't exist had he gone on to do Star Trek. So we can be grateful for that because I just think that show is so smart. And uh, I mean, I just, I just love it. I think for me, I, hearing the name for all mankind, I think there was already a series about that. And then there was from the earth to the moon, which I just mm -hmm. absolutely loved. But I thought, okay, I don't need to hear the story again. I didn't realize what it was. Yeah, alternate history. Yeah. And then when someone mentioned that to me and a buddy of mine was watching and said, oh my God, this is great. Matt and I watched the first episode and like you, we were just completely hooked. Yeah. Such fantastic characters, such great mm -hmm. acting. Yeah. Well, it's so inventive. And, you know, just the sort of where history went left, they go right. And, and that's what I love about it because it combines everything I love. It's like Star Trek, Space 99, politics, you know, alternate history. It's like, it's great. I mean, and I just, I mean, I love, you know, sort of little things like, you know, um, Chappaquiddick never happened because, you know, uh, Teddy Kennedy didn't go to, New, you know, New England then and, and just was stayed in Washington and, and ended up becoming president. And it's just so it's so clever. And the way it integrates real life, um, uh, you know, the way it uses sort of the newsreel footage of Reagan and just I mean, it's so interesting. Um, and, you know, it's just really smart. And yeah, there's some soap opera beats that aren't the best, but um, right. but the, the sci fi. And, um, you know, the characters are so interesting. I've never liked Joel Kinnaman more than I like him in um, in uh, in the show. But the whole cast, the whole ensemble is fantastic. It uh, it makes me think, uh, what if uh, some of the hardware there uh, will become available to be included in the sci-fi air show? <laughs> mm. You never know. <laughs> oh, I love that sci-fi The guy who show. runs it's really lazy these days and doesn't want to do that much work, so I don't know. Well, oh, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you doing any panels down in San Diego, or are you just going for fun? I'm going for fun. Okay. Going to spend money at the show. We're going to be down there. We're doing uh, the Trexperts. We're doing our Inglorious Trexperts panel down there on uh, on Friday. So uh, What time? Well, what time? Oh, I, I don't think we're allowed to announce it, but I'll tell you when we're done. Okay. They, they say don't until they announce the schedule. We're not supposed to talk about times and and rooms, but we can talk about the fact that we have a panel. So we just announced it. The Inglorious Trexperts Live will be there on uh, uh, but, <laughs> Friday. Uh, on, on Friday, but uh, on Friday, but not on Tuesdays. Oh, are we still live? I thought we were off. Oh, yeah, we're still we're still going. We just can't oh. stop. We can't stop the podcast. <laughs> but maybe we should wrap up now. So, uh, Bill, thank you for doing this. This was so important. Oh, to, absolutely. To uh, and you know you 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 knew Greg for such a long time. So um, he was he was a really good friend. And one of the things that I've you know it's good to be reminded of this now and again is you know don't take your friends for granted. And I just wanted to say I love both you guys, and I'm so happy we're friends. And Me keep too. on trekking. <laughs> Ingloriously, of course. <laughs> which would be perfect if we hadn't, but we, we didn't do the rest of the outro yet. We got to talk. We got to thank our sound mixer, Mark Rivera. We got to thank Bill Ritter, Natalie Miscali, Peter Holmstrom. We got to say there's, a, there's an entirely different podcast, the Glorious Trexperts <laughs> that you can listen to on the weekend. 
And uh, then there was What's also uh, rate us five stars on the uh, on the Apple uh, Spotify and all that stuff. And then we're on social too, so check us out there. And Mark has a new book out. I don't know if we mentioned that, but uh, those are the highlights. And uh, other than that, uh, we want to wish you uh, good luck, and uh, we want to thank Bill for being here. And on behalf of Bill, Darren, and myself, Mark Altman, now now go. Now you can say what? it. You can say, say the words. Keep on trekking. Oh, keep on trekking. Ingloriously. Of course. Thank you. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. Can we do another day? <laughs> <laughs>